Good morning. Around October 31st, my family and I took a walk around our neighborhood here in Shadron. One house stood out. It had a gothic kind of look with skulls, ghosts, and other reminders of death. What holiday would prompt decorations of skulls, ghosts, and death? Well, this holiday we call Halloween once had a different name, Samhain. So I was looking at the History Channel for, I'm not sure what reason, but I got there for some reason. And the Celts believed that on the night before the New Year, which they celebrated on November 1st, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became blurred. So on the night of October 31st, it was believed that the ghosts of the dead returned to Earth. So the celebrations back in that time period included sacrifices to Celtic gods, costumes, and fortune-telling. The World History Encyclopedia notes that the use of costumes was an attempt to trick the bad spirits from harming them so they could communicate with their dead loved ones. Because they believed the veil between the spirit world and the human world had been torn, they thought they could be visited by their dead loved ones, but they also thought they could be visited by an evil spirit, an otherworldly creature. Basically, who knew what was coming? And so they put on costumes and face masks with an attempt to hide from the bad spirits so they could see their loved ones. Obviously, Halloween has developed a little bit. I don't know many people who are actually trying to avoid evil spirits. But interestingly enough, the decorations are not all that different, are they? We still see ghosts and skulls and death and some houses look more like a haunted house than a house that actually has humans in it. See, the emphasis on skulls, ghosts, and death so often displayed in Halloween contrasts with the lights of Christmas. So you notice now, from October 31st to December, now you look at the decorations of Christmas. Usually it's light of some sort, right? We have lights strung on our houses. We have lights on Christmas trees. We have lights lighting up nativity scenes. We have candles even on the... Lights on lights, right? <laughs> candles on the light posts. The decorations are telling something about what, what we're celebrating, right? And so it's very natural and right that we should celebrate Christmas and decorate Christmas with lights. You see, light is a natural antidote to darkness. Where light exists, darkness must necessarily not exist. They can't exist together. And we see this every time we turn on a light. If it's a functioning light, right? <laughs> a functioning light will automatically erase the darkness so we can see. Sam alluded to this in the sermon in John 1, verses 1 to 5, where John writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we continue with verses 6 to 8 from John 1, we will see that John bears witness to the light 
so that all nations would see the glory of God in the revealed Christ. So if you look at your bulletin, you'll see there's an outline at the back. You should see the main point there. If it helps you, uh, the main points will be there to help uh, as we work through uh, verses 6 to 8. So before we come to read verses 6 to 8, let's pray and seek his guidance. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are light. And we see the glorious display of your light in the face of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that this Christmas we can dwell on the light that is Christ. That you have overcome. The darkness cannot exist in the face of the purity of your beauty. And your light will overcome. And darkness will be vanquished. We praise you for this is not our doing. But it is yours. And so we ask that as we come to John 1, 6 to 8, we ask, Father, the Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to hear. That you would dispel the distractions that so easily creep into our minds. That you be with my words, that they might be helpful, edifying, and true to what you are communicating and how you are speaking to us. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So first, as we look at John 1, 68, well, first we should actually read it, right? And then we'll get into it. John 1, 68. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. I think it, we see right at the face of it that this is all about the witness of John, right? That word witness is used three times in those three verses. So John came as a witness. Well, what John are we talking about? This could be slightly confusing because John is talking about John. So the Apostle John is, is writing the gospel here. And the apostle, the close disciple of Jesus, John, is referring to another John called John the Baptist. That's confirmed in verses 19 through 34, that he's clearly talking about John the Baptist. And we'll get to that uh, in a moment. So we see that this man whose name was John came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So what was the witness of John the Baptist? Well, thankfully, John 1 is really clear. And so if we go down to verses 19, we'll read a couple of verses later in verse 19, and we'll see what kind of witness John the Baptist came to be. So verse 19, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So the kind of witness that John the Baptist is, is foretold there in Isaiah 40, 3 to 5. That's the quote that he quotes there in verse 23. John the Baptist was a forerunner of this person called the Christ. 
So in Isaiah 43 to 5, Isaiah says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I skipped verse 4. Sorry, guys. (laughs) If you were following along on the screen. So John the Baptist is a forerunner. And his purpose is to prepare the way of the Lord. And his purpose was to reveal the, the glory of the Lord. So through John the Baptist's witness, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. This is exactly what he says down in verse 33. I'm sorry, verse 31. I myself do not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So in John 131, we get this statement that John the Baptist came that the Christ might be revealed to Israel. Isaiah 40, verse 5 says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And John the Baptist is the one who came to prepare the way for the Lord and for the revelation of the glory of the Lord. So John the Baptist goes back to Isaiah to describe his witness as a forerunner. There's another witness in the Old Testament. And that is that of the coming figure, Elijah. Now, interestingly, here in John 1, John the Baptist denies that he's Elijah. But in Matthew 10, Jesus says he is Elijah. So apparently John the Baptist, in when he was responding to, these, to the Pharisees, wasn't aware of his identity as the Elijah to come. That would be revealed even to himself later. Some of the prophets didn't actually know exactly what they were doing all the time. (laughs) Sometimes they didn't understand exactly their connections to what Jesus was doing, and they were revealed even to themselves. And this seems to be an indication where John the Baptist um, would have learned something later on about his exact mission and purpose. But in Malachi 4, verse 2 to 6, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Notice in John 1, 6 to 8, how the reference is that John came as a witness about the light. And what is the prophecy of Malachi 4? It's a prophecy that the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Well, we know that the sun is a brilliant display of light. That is, that is how we get light, right? <laughs> we have light on this earth largely because the sun is shining onto this earth. And so using a play on words, Malachi refers to this coming one whom the Elijah will prepare the way for as the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in its wings. Through this son of righteousness, 
the, the wicked will be destroyed, right? You shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet. A reference to the promise of Genesis 3.15, that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of Satan. The treading down, the crushing of the enemy will occur in this son of righteousness figure who will rise with healing in its wings. You see, the reason that it talks about rising with healing goes back to the reason we need the light in the first place, does it not? Why do we need light? We need light because we dwell in darkness. In Isaiah 9, Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You see, the reason why the light needs to come is because we live in a world of deep darkness. And that goes all the way back to the first sin of Adam, does it not? There in the garden, Adam rebelled against God's law and sinned. And because of his sin, death entered into this world, Romans 5 says. Because of Adam's sin, death entered into this world. And so death has now spread to all men because of the, because of the sin of Adam. Darkness has now swept over the earth that God created. As we noted in verse 5 of John 1 last week, Darkness is associated with death, right? Because light is associated with life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this contrast of darkness and light is a contrast of death and life. And what the light is doing is restoring people back to God's presence. Because you remember, after Adam's disobedience, Mankind was expelled from the garden. They were banished from God's presence. And so the story of the whole Old Testament is just that, is how does a sinful people come back into relationship with a holy God? When darkness came, so did the separation between man and God. And so now what the light is coming to do is to restore a people back to God's presence to heal that broken relationship because of sin. And so the forerunner, John the Baptist, is is calling people back to relationship with God by preparing the way of the Lord and showing people who the true Christ is. This would have been a remarkable message to the audience of that time. For again, remembering what's going on, for 400 years, there has been no message from God, right? We're in John 1. And so when we come to John 1, we realize that the Old Testament is what's immediately before. What were the people waiting for? You see, you might wonder, why are the people asking in John 1, are you the Christ, are you Elijah, are you the prophet? Well, they're asking those questions because they haven't heard from God recently, like 400 years recently. There's been a silence. And they're waiting for this this coming one, this coming Christ. 
who will defeat darkness. They're waiting for the light again to shine. But they haven't seen it. And so John the Baptist, but he comes on the scene and he starts talking about the light, about bearing witness to the light. And he starts calling people to repentance, which sounds a lot like Malachi 4, the turning of the hearts. He starts coming with his, ba- with his message of forgiveness of sins. And he starts pointing people to this other person. He starts saying, you know, it's not me. I'm not the Christ, he says, right? He says in verse 26 of John 1, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist comes on the scene with this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and then starts talking about this greater one who's coming after him. That sounds a lot like Isaiah 40, right? He's sounding a lot like somebody who's preparing the way for the Christ. And the crowd's picking up on it a little bit, right? (laughs) They're recognizing that John the Baptist is doing something unique here. And so they're asking a bunch of questions. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? There, where are these prophecies? They know about the prophecy of Elijah. They know about the prophecy of Christ. And their question is, what are you doing here? (laughs) What's your role in this? Because it's sounding similar to what we've read in the Old Testament. And so John bears witness, but he makes it pretty clear, right? He's not the light. (laughs) He says that there in verse 8. He says, I am not the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So if John the Baptist isn't the light, then who is? (laughs) Right? Well, John the Baptist tells us who the light is. And he uses the term, the Christ, to describe it. Throughout the Old Testament, the Christ is generally a reference to three particular offices. Prophet, priest, and king. The word Christ means anointed one. And there were three representative offices of prophet, priest, and king. They were all anointed And so the Old Testament foreshadows who the Christ is using the idea of prophet, priest, and king to illustrate who the Christ is and what he will do. We see that here in John 1. We first see a message mentioned there in verse 21 with the question, are you the prophet? Well, who is this prophet with a capital P? What are they asking about? Well, if you go to Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophecy about the prophet who is to come. In Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So they were aware of this prophecy of the prophet who was to come. But I don't think they really understood the true meaning of this prophecy. Because John 1 really adds to this, does it not? You see, they're looking for the prophet. It almost seems like what the, the crowds and the people are looking for is, you know, like the best of the prophets they've seen yet. But notice how John 1 frames what kind of prophet Jesus is in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. You see, the prophets were tasked with communicating the word of God to the people. 
So God would give them a message and they would relay that message to the people. That's not really what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus isn't getting a message from God and then giving them to the people. He is the message himself. He's the very word and he's speaking directly to them in a way that the prophets could never have done. He is the word. He's the greater prophet because he is the word of God. And he communicates the word of God directly to the people. Well, not only is there a concept of a greater prophet, but there's a prophecy of a greater priest who is to come. So in 1 Samuel 2, 35, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So there's this promise of a faithful priest who will come. This was necessary because the current priesthood in 1 Samuel had really degenerated from what it was supposed to be. Eli, the high priest at that time, permitted his sons to do wicked things as they were offering sacrifices to God. Not even just like on the side, but in the act of doing sacrifices, were disobeying God's law, and then on the side they were doing bad things as well. Eli permitted this to happen, so God comes in judgment and says, the priesthood is going to end, and I'm going to raise up a better one, a greater one, who's actually going to do the job. But what what, what did this priest do? If you go to Isaiah 53, you'll see what this priest will do. In Isaiah 53, 7, the priest is described as this servant of God figure. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You see, the kind of priest that would come is the priest who would offer himself as the slaughtered lamb of God. This is also unlike the priest, right? The priests would offer sacrifices, but they'd offer animal sacrifices, right? They'd bring the lamb or or some sacrifice that was required. But the high priest who is to come will offer himself as the sacrifice, as the slaughtered lamb. And this reference to slaughtered lamb goes back to the Passover, does it not? You remember what happened when, in the Passover event, the people of Israel were enslaved to Egypt. God sends Moses down to lead the people out. But Pharaoh's just not in the mood, right? He's like, what, me? Give my slaves away? Well, that's ridiculous. Who's going to build my palaces? I need my forced labor. No, I'm not letting you go. And so nine plagues go, and he's still... He's a resilient guy. He's resistant. He's stubborn. He's not going to give in. So God sends a tenth plague. And in this plague, God is going to send a destroyer who will strike down the firstborn son of everyone in the land. There was only one way to be spared from the death that would come on every household. And that was if they put the blood of a lamb that was slaughtered, a male lamb, without blemish, a perfect male lamb was slaughtered. 
And that blood was put on the doorposts. And when the death angel passed through the land of Egypt, if he saw the blood of the male perfect lamb with the blood smeared on the doorposts, that house would be spared from death and the wrath of God would not come down on that house. Because the blood of the lamb covered that house. That's the picture of the Passover. And so when Isaiah, this servant figure, talks about like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, he has in his mind the slaughtered lamb whose blood would stay the wrath of God and would spare the people from death. And that's exactly what we see in verses 10 to 11 of Isaiah 53. In verses 10 10 and 11, we see, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice the emphasis on the righteous one. Just like the lamb had to be without spot, unblemished, so Jesus was without spot, unblemished. He was the righteous lamb of God. And what two things would this sacrifice do? Well, he shall bear their iniquities, right? So the slaughtered lamb is representing how the servant will will, will take the sins of the people on himself. Remember, what is the consequence, the punishment of sin? It was always death, right? When God said to Adam, if you eat, you die. He ate, he died. Remember the people during Noah's time? They were known for their violence and their corruption and their sin. What happened? They died. Ezekiel says, the soul who sins shall die. So the pattern is very clear. If you sin, you die. Well, that's why the servant came. The picture of the Passover lamb is that because sin requires death... The slaughtered lamb dies instead of the sinner. In this case, the servant will die instead of the sinner. He'll bear their iniquities. And not only will the servant die, but he will also credit the people with righteousness. That's the second thing that the sacrifice will do. That language, it uses accounted there, but it has the idea of crediting. So if you have knowledge of accounting, and I have very limited, so I'm going to share my limited knowledge, and then don't ask me more questions, please. (laughs) But if you go to your bank account, you have a debit or a credit. I'm not talking about debit cards, by the way. That that is different. But in your bank account, you see debit, and debit is what you owe. So if if in your debit column, you want nothing there, right? (laughs) Nothing there. It's what you owe. The credit is what you have. Well, the, the, the problem with humans is we got a lot in the debit category, right? We're in debt, basically, if you want to look at it that way. We're in debt. Sin has accrued a great debt before God. And so what Jesus is doing is saying this picture of the lamb is, is he pays the debt. The debt is, well, we owe our lives because we sinned. And so the sacrifice 
pays the debt for us. And then it also gives us the credit. And the credit is righteousness. So the sin is taken away, the debt's paid, and we receive righteousness. That's the picture of redemption foreshadowed in the Passover, explained in Isaiah 53. So when we come to John 1, what does John say about Jesus in in John 1, 29? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John announces to the world that this Passover sacrifice that they knew, this, this redemptive sacrifice that would be accomplished by this servant is Jesus. Jesus will pay this sin debt. Jesus will credit his people with righteousness. Jesus is the righteous, slaughtered lamb of God. He's the greater priest who offers himself as the slaughtered lamb of God. And the third aspect of, of the Christ is the greater king. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, there's a prophecy of God raising up a third figure. First it was prophet, then it was priest, now it is king. In 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up. Notice that in each of these passages, there's been an I will raise up phrase. That keys us in it being a prophecy of what God will do. I will raise up your offering after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What we see in that is this emphasis on this one who will come to restore the kingdom of God. Similar to Malachi saying, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The coming one would be a restorer and restore the people back to God's presence. Remember again, our problem is we've been alienated from God, banished from God's presence, and now we're looking for the one who will restore us. And he will restore us through the blood by dying as the slaughtered lamb of God, and he will restore us to the kingdom of God. But who's this one who will do that? There are two things mentioned there in in 2 Samuel 7 that give us an idea of who this person will be. First, he'll be a son of David. He will come from David, in the line of David. It says that in the beginning there. And second, he'll be the son of God. See, the I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Who's talking? God is talking in this, so the I is God. So God will be to him, the son of David, a father, and he, this descendant of David, shall be to me, God, a son. So the clear teaching of 2 Samuel 7 is this king who's going to come to restore people back to God's kingdom will be a son of David, a son of God, fully man, fully God. Which is exactly how Jesus is described, is he not? In the prophecies of his birth, he's described as the son of David and the son of God. And it's exactly how John announces Jesus here in John 1. In verse 32, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
John the Baptist sees the Son of God. His witness is that of an eyewitness testimony. He's not even talking about something somebody told him. For if you remember, here in John 1, it just alludes to what happened. But remember the fuller story. John the Baptist, he baptizes Jesus. And after he baptizes Jesus, right, the dove comes down and alights above his head. And the voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist saw and heard the father declare Jesus to be the son of God. And he's recording the very thing he saw and heard. He was an eyewitness testimony to Jesus as the son of God, as the greater king. Pulling it all together, here's the summary point of what we learn about John's witness. His witness to the light. Christ is the son of righteousness who offered himself as a slaughtered lamb of God to pay the sin debt and rose as the Davidic king to credit sinners with righteousness so that through faith the light of God shines in the darkness of their hearts to heal the broken relationship between God and and sinners. This is the witness of John the Baptist from Isaiah 40, Malachi 4, describing the greater prophet, priest, and king who would come. This is the message. And we call this the gospel, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, the news of peace on earth to men. And the witness of John was specifically a witness to all nations. So what's the point, right? Like, well, this is a lot of information, and hopefully it's interesting, but why? (laughs) Why is it important that we know who Jesus is? Why is it important that we really understand the proclamation of John the Baptist and study the light that is shining In the darkness. John 1 tells us why this is important. And what the purpose is. In John 1, 7. That all might believe through him. The point of John. Announcing and presenting Jesus. As the greater prophet. The lamb of God. the, The king. The son of God. Is that we would believe. This is consistent with really the whole book of John, is it not? As was referenced last week in John 20, 31, the whole purpose of this book is bookended. In the first chapter and at the end. In John 20, 31, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole point of this presentation of who Jesus is is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And friends, it's not only John the Baptist who's a witness of this, is it? For all those who have believed in Jesus Christ, it's almost as if we take up the mantle of John the Baptist and we continue this witness, this announcement 
of who Jesus is. In Luke 24, 44 to 48, this is exactly how, how Jesus tells his disciples. So John the Baptist is the forerunner, right? He's the one that prepares the way and points us to who Jesus is. And so after Jesus dies as a slaughtered lamb and rises again with righteousness, with healing in its wings, he then commissions his people to do a very similar thing that John the Baptist was doing. The difference is John the Baptist looked forward to Christ. We look back. We point back to what Christ has done. And so in Luke 24, 44 to 48, then he said to them, these are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So there in Luke 24, Jesus commissions his people with the same message, right? The message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to the same people, to all nations. And even at the end of the book of John, in in a different way, John tells his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Christ has sent his people to all nations to be witnesses of Christ that all nations might believe. What John the Baptist did is what we're supposed to do, be witnesses of the Christ. So as we think about that, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to this presentation of Jesus Christ? Well, one response, because the witness of Christ has been recorded, we don't add to the testimony of Scripture, right? We have the witness. We have the record of testimony. We don't need to add anything to it or take anything from it. Scripture is sufficient to tell us all we need to know about who Christ is and what he has done. One of the ways that I I see a lot, a subtle way this doesn't happen, is the tendency to take an emphasis and focus on some parts of Scripture and ignore the, the ones that we don't really like. There's a tendency in all of us to do that, right? We have different ideas that we like better than others. And so one of the clear ways this is done is, a, is an extreme focus on God's love. Now, you can't really focus on, on God's love too much if we understand God's love correctly. But one way that the, the testimony of Scripture is distorted is when we view God's love apart from God's wrath. It's when we say, oh, God is a, is a loving God. He, he accepts everybody. So we don't want to talk about the negative things, right? We don't want to talk about judgment. We don't want, want, we don't want to talk about God's wrath because that that's not who God is. God is love. If we do that, we ignore the testimony of Scripture that God is a God of wrath. And we ignore the cross. 
in which God's love is displayed by the slaughtered lamb taking the wrath of God for us. Friends, if God's wrath is not poured out on his son on the cross, then there is no love for us to have in the first place. If you want to experience the love of God, you must first come to terms with his wrath that is poured out on sin. For it is the just God of wrath who also is the God who extends mercy and shed his love to us. We must be true to the whole witness of Scripture. And because the witness of Christ is sufficient, we rely on the testimony of the whole Scripture. You notice, and how does John the Baptist reveal who Jesus is? It's from the Old Testament. Isaiah 40, the Christ, the prophet who's to come, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. These are all references to the Old Testament. So John's witness is a witness from the Old Testament to who Christ is. Now, I know they only had the Old Testament, but the New Testament is showing us how we reveal Christ to others. We don't just reveal Christ from the New Testament, and we don't just reveal Christ from the Old Testament. We use the Old and the New Testament together. Together, the Old and New Testament work in such a way that the Old Testament shows us who Christ is, describes who Christ is, and the New Testament shows us how Jesus is that one who was promised, and he's the the slaughtered lamb who takes our sin. The Bible is the interconnected whole that reveals Christ and calls us to believe in him. And the last response is maybe the most obvious response. As John was sent as a witness to the revealed Christ, so we have been sent as a witness of Christ to all nations. So friends, how are we doing? How is our witness to our communities, in our homes, Are we a witness of Christ? In the Christmas holidays, it's quite easy to get very busy, right? We see the lights around us. They're they're nice. I remember as a kid, you know, we would always drive around and look at all the Christmas lights. It was exciting. It was cool to see all the things light up. But it can be easy to be spectators, right? And to look at the beautiful things, but to spend our life, and is our Christmas really all that different from a person who doesn't believe, and they just view Christmas as family time? We can fall into that same trap of letting our witness be dulled even as we celebrate all this light. The busyness of the season can sometimes even distract us from the purpose, the reason for why we light everything up in the first place. We are a witness to the light of Christ. And in in this time especially, as the lights around us point us to the light of Christ, let's look for those opportunities. If we're in the store, if our, our child asks us a question, if our friend at school wonders why things are happening in certain traditions of Christmas, Let's be ready. Let's be ready to share the light of Christ. And in our actions, in our words, in our behavior, let's model the light of Christ by showing love and mercy. And on our lips, sharing that message of repentance, 
for forgiveness of sins. Everybody is sent, right? Some of us are sent to other nations of the world, but we're all sent where we are. If you live in Sadrin, you've been sent to Sadrin to be the light of Christ, to be witnesses of who Christ is and what he has done. One theologian, I think, said it well. The apostles likewise are peculiarly called light because they go before holding out the torch of the gospel to dispel the darkness of the world. Friends, that's what we do, right? We hold out the torch of the gospel to dispel the darkness of the world. Because John has said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We have the overcoming light. Let's display that. Let's dispel the darkness with a torch of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have made us lights. We praise you Christ, that you, the slaughtered Lamb of God, you bore our sin. You paid our sin that you credit us with righteousness. You rose again as the conquering king. And you reign. And because you reign, your light has shone in the person of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, would you prepare us to be witnesses for you? May your light that's so shown in the person of Jesus Christ shine in our hearts. May we be reflectors of your light. That as we go about our lives, that we are dramatically changed by the very light that you have poured into our hearts. Keep us from distraction. Keep us from complacency. Send us And equip us, we pray, that we might be witnesses of Christ. It's in Jesus' name, through his death and resurrection that we pray. Amen.